And I'm McKenna. And together we're the Daily Profcast. We're two long-distance besties who share a love of Harry Potter. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. Hello. Today we are going through chapters 9 through 12. You will remember at the end of chapter 8 that according to the fat lady and Peeves the poltergeist, Sirius Black tried to break into the Gryffindor common room. So chapter 9 starts off with all of the students all of the students, not just the Gryffindor students, I think spending the night in the Great Hall with some sleeping bags. What I think is really funny about that situation is Percy keeps trying to quiet down all of the students and get them to stop talking and whispering. And I'm like, in what world would students be able to sleep quietly? There's no world, especially after something like that. Yeah, of course. Like everybody wants to gossip. I would want to yeah. gossip. It's like when you're trying to sleep at a sleepover, you know? And yeah. Absolutely. What is this sleeping bag spell that Dumbledore uses? Why can't no. we have an incantation? I would like to know what the spell is. Right. That could be so useful when they're out hunting horcruxes later. Yeah. Like <laughs> so tell us the spell, Dumbledore. Harry is still awake hours later and overhears this conversation between Snape and Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. And Snape basically insinuates that there's somebody on campus that he thinks may be helping Sirius get into the castle. And Dumbledore Um, shuts it down. Dumbledore shuts it down. But I want to talk about this because not that Lupin is helping Sirius get into the castle. So Snape is insinuating that because Lupin and Sirius were chums back in school, he thinks that he might be like aiding his buddy back into the castle. And Lupin isn't actively aiding Sirius back into the castle, but we're going to find out later that there is more that Lupin could do to help them find Sirius. And he is willingly withholding information from Dumbledore because it is information that would reflect badly on him. I don't know that I have to say more on that now. but No, I actually, I wrote that same note down, but I wrote it down a little bit later in my notes. Also because it's sort of interesting to think, is he really doing it for him or is he doing it because he doesn't 100% believe that Sirius is as guilty as everyone else thinks he is? Totally. And that's something I actually go back and forth on because... To be honest, I think that's something that Lupin goes back and forth on. (laughs) Probably because we know, or we're going to find out later, by the end of the first Wizarding War, before Halloween 1981... Sirius and Remus were not close anymore. They didn't trust each other. Sirius particularly didn't trust Remus because Remus was going on extra missions for Dumbledore to werewolf colonies and was gone a lot. So he was just like absent. Sirius is what is he doing when he's gone? So they stopped trusting each other. So that would have made it a little bit more believable when Lupin heard the news that like Sirius was the one that betrayed the Potters but at the same time I don't think his his you know relationship with Sirius and that like rockiness that happened at the end would have had an effect in Remus's mind on how he viewed Sirius and James's relationship because it like common commonly it was commonly known that Sirius and James were like brothers you know so I think 
you know, maybe the way that Remus can rationalize it is like, oh, like we didn't trust each other. He started scapegoating me because he was the one who was really doing all these devious things and acting as the spy, like everybody says. But at the same time, I think when he really goes back and thinks about Sirius and James's relationship and probably his relationship with Lily as well, he's probably, this makes no sense, but taking Dumbledore at his word, you know? So that's, I, I go back and forth whether he really... He, and you're right, he probably does too, whether he really believes that Sirius is guilty or not. It's so many feelings to have to reconcile with on top of his like obvious transitions and the challenge of that. And then seeing Harry and then being back in a place <sighs> where he feels nostalgia for the only happy time in his whole life. I It's just too many uh... feelings for one pure man to handle for one sweet pure man who is just already so like fragile <laughs> like not that he's fragile but like his body is weakened by everything that happens to him oh god poor lupin i just i feel so sad for him yes snape is insinuating that he's helping Sirius back in and he is in a way sort of helping Sirius, not actively but sort of passively and then they're talking, so we see a couple times in these four chapters that like people are communicating with the Dementors, like telling them where to go and telling them where not to go. How, how does one communicate with a Dementor? I have one more note on Dumbledore's conversation okay. with yes, Snape. Please. It's really small. I feel like this is the beginning of Snape's total undoing. What do you mean? Elaborate, please. I would like to hear. He is so convinced that Remus must have something to do with Sirius getting into the castle and that there's like more to be uncovered and Dumbledore's not pushing hard enough which to be honest he's actually not really wrong there is more Lupin could be divulging but also stuff that Dumbledore would know Dumbledore would know about the passage underneath the Whomping Willow mm -hmm. but Dumbledore so much shuts Snape down and I feel like this is just he's starting to unravel that's we're gonna, true we're gonna see it and how he treats Hermione and like the things that are to come but this is like the total like unraveling of and he yeah he you know he's already sort of been going after Lupin with you know teaching the class on werewolves and now you're right he really does start to go after him after this that's a really good point just quick note about Quidditch. There's a switch in the teams because Malfoy's hurt, but he's like not, but he is milking it. So they end up having to face Hufflepuff. This is our first time hearing about Cedric Diggory, who is, it's weird because it says he's the new captain and seeker, which I'm assuming he's not new on the team. Like he's a fifth year. He's probably been on the team, but now he has switched positions and he's also the captain, just sort of weird. And then I think it's one of the twins says Hufflepuff is a pushover when they're like talking about facing Hufflepuff. And I'm like, can we stop like falling into the tropes of that we've created for the houses, please? Oh. Just because the Hufflepuffs are the nice ones. Like they're going to lose the Quidditch match. Can we not? And they actually, they played fantastically. They did yeah, they win. The That's not helped by Harry having to face Dementors, but still. You're right. This is the beginning of Snape's unraveling. Would you like to talk about him teaching the Defense Against the Dark Arts class when Lupin is out sick, quote, quote? Yeah, so Lupin is out. Snape, you know, comes in. He sort of makes a big fuss that they don't know enough. And Lupin hasn't been teaching them 
up to his snuff, which is just ironic because, you know, Snape has unsuccessfully, or he has not been successful at getting the data position. Um, totally. So he like has to undermine what Lupin's doing. And we all know by all the students' accounts, Lupin's been a fantastic, very hands-on teacher. Right. He's been doing a fantastic job. And so he skips ahead to the iconic page 394. Yep. <laughs> that will live rent-free in my mind forever. Which is chapters ahead of where they are right. in curriculum yeah. for the year. And we know specifically he has gone to werewolves because he is trying to out Lupin. Right. This is my biggest complaint. One of my biggest complaints about Snape is that, you know, we see that he's not very nice to a good, like a good amount of the students, but he is actively, this would be like, I don't know. He's like trying to out him for his condition. That is horrible. Which would surely make him lose his post as a teacher. Yeah. Which would then make Snape, I guess, eligible, but you know, he, we know he doesn't get it next year. He's just out to get Lupin. And it's really sad because Lupin's such a good teacher and I get it. I know all the history between Lupin and Snape. And we know like, there's a particular reason why, you know, Dumbledore hasn't put Snape in the defense against, well, I guess we don't know at this point. Yeah. But he's not in that post for a reason. Yeah. Quite a few reasons, I think, but yeah. So he totally undermines the class. He skips, I mean, units ahead of what they're supposed to be on to talk about werewolves. Of course, Hermione is the only person who knows anything and can't answer questions. And she's raising her hand and she's trying to answer. And he is barking back at her for what he calls being an insufferable know-it-all. I actually think this is probably not the worst thing he's ever said to Hermione, but it definitely hits. And even Ron, who is, I always think she's an insufferable know-it-all feels bad for her. Ron, well, not only does he feel bad for her, he sticks up for her. He talks back to Snape and gets detention. Yeah. We miss out on so much of Ron's protective instinct, I think, in the films. Because he, the, in the films, they sort of, you know, they sort of showed him, like, really freaked out by Snape. But he, like, totally stands up for Hermione and gets a detention for it. And I love, I feel like we miss that part of his character in the films. And I love that for Ron. He's the first to notice when she's around. He always sticks up for her. It's like, you know, I can rag on her, but you can't rag on her. Right. So, yeah. It, it's, yeah. well, that, that is sort of one of the ways, one of the reasons why I feel like they have a brothery, sistery sort of relationship sometimes. But Yes, exactly. It's okay when he does it, but it's not okay. Not only does Snape come in and like skip chapters ahead in their curriculum, he assigns them homework, which like, unless the- The worst substitute teacher teacher ever. Yes, unless the actual teacher has given the sub a plan to give homework that they were already planning on giving, like a sub is not supposed to give their own homework. So he assigns them homework and it's, not only does he assign them homework, he assigns them an essay on how to recognize and kill a werewolf. Yeah, it's Recognize awful. and kill. It's awful. It's awful. Particularly ironic as well, because Snape was a follower of Voldemort and Voldemort recruited dark creatures into his army. Like Fenrir Greyback, who is one of the most prominent, you know, death eaters is a werewolf yeah <laughs> and yeah. so and it's not it's like snape's bias isn't about werewolves in general it's just in relation mm-hmm. to lupin you know and there's his there yeah yeah 
so yeah, awful, 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 awful. But we will say this scene with Alan Rickman in the films is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> he's so yeah, good. He's so Turn good. to page 394. <laughs> so good. We love Alan Rickman where Alan Rickman stands. And then the next day, Harry wakes up kind of early before the Quidditch match. It's really stormy. He kicks, Crookshanks is trying to get into the boy's dorm. Like Crookshanks like has it out for Scavers. And yeah, and there's this Quidditch match. It's horribly windy and rainy. Harry can't see anything until Hermione performs this impervious spell on his glasses. So they Do repel we think water. this is ethical that Hermione can just come into the Gryffindor dressing room? and perform the spell on here. He's yeah, like, how does she show up here? Like, where, where did she come from? She just kind of like poofs out of nowhere. I mean, I don't know that it's unethical because it's not like, it's not like enchanting a piece of equipment to have an advantage. It's enchanting a piece of apparel that somebody already uses so that it functions how it normally would as opposed to not functioning because of the rain. Oh, I just um, hope that if there are any Hufflepuffs who wore glasses, they got the same treatment. The same treatment. You're right. You are right. And then Harry sees a black dog in the stands and he keeps thinking he's seeing the Grimm. But we know. Like, oh God, Trelawney was right. This crazy dog omen is out to get me. But it's um, really serious. But it's really serious. And I just. I died at this part. I can you imagine? Happened. Can you imagine the pride? Can you imagine Sirius watching Harry play Quidditch and just like seeing his best friend's son on a broomstick and like James was this big jock and Sirius is probably feeling so many feelings. <laughs> it's so incredibly risky to go Oh, totally there, risky. But, but it's serious. You have to imagine, exactly. It's serious. And he is just a known um, risk taker. <laughs> yeah. He lives on the edge and I wrote this, I, I took the same note. It must have been so surreal to see a little shaggy-haired boy who looked so much like James, you know, flying around on the broomstick. And we have to remember, like, the Marauders were really not that far out of Hogwarts when everything went down. They were only out of Hogwarts, like, three, like three years. years. Yeah. That's not that long. That's, like, for the average American like less time than it takes you to complete an average college degree yeah so for a lot of people like you're still really attached to your hometown like you might go back for football games you might and he's instead been locked away in prison for so many years and so for him and for Lupin like to be back at this place where all of their like happiest times happened before they like had to be adults and face the real world and literally go to war it has to be the most surreal, crazy feeling. I want the books. I want three books, three through five, six, and seven, depending on where their timelines get cut short, written from their perspective. And I just want to hear everything. In fact, I'm kind of low-key doing that, but it's fine. And then, so the Dementors come onto the grounds. Harry sees the Dementors. He faints. He falls off his broom. But this time is a little different because... Previously, he's just heard this scream that he has sort of ascertained as his mother's voice. Now, not only does he hear the scream, each encounter he has with the Dementors is getting worse. Now he hears the entire dialogue of Lily's last stand with Voldemort. And I forgot that this happened in the books and it wasn't just that one scream they recorded and used in every Dementor scene in the film. I forgot that this happened and this chilled me to the bone. 
Yeah, it was awful. Hearing, can you imagine hearing that? Your dead mother's last stand for your life in right. your head. And it's awful and it's sad and it's horrifying. And at the same time, this is like one of the few times Harry's ever heard. This is the only time Harry's ever heard his parents' voice. Yes. Since infancy. Yeah. Since infancy. And he mentions that. He like is thinking about that. This is the first time he's ever remembered hearing his mother's voice. There's a part I'll, I'll never mind. I'll talk about it when we get there. But the, the fact that he hears that entire dialogue, just, oh man, got, it got chilling. me, it got yeah. me in the feels. There were a lot of moments in these couple chapters that got me in the feels. And then, you know, he falls off his broom. Dumbledore stops him before he smashes 50 feet, you know, down onto the ground, but he ends up in the hospital wing and his broom smashes into the whomping willow. I know. So his beloved Nimbus 2000. Harry's like most favorite possession. So sad. And he's just, so the next chapter, he is, it's him sort of recovering from the Dementor attack on the field. Dumbledore was furious, said the Dementor shouldn't have been on the grounds. We're wondering sort of what they were doing there. And there's this quote where- We know they were there because Sirius was there. Yes. Yeah. And, and Lupin sort of gives another reason later. He's like, oh, they probably, you know, since they're not around Azkaban, or these particular Dementors are not around Azkaban, they're not feeding off of the people in there. And they're just sort of floating around the outskirts of the grounds. They were probably hungry for like human happiness. And they probably just wandered on because a, a big Quidditch match with a bunch of people, like spectators in the stands was probably like a feast for them. That's the reason he gives later. There's this quote where Harry's so sad about his broom. He's like keeping it at the side of his hospital bed. And he says, it felt as though he'd lost one of his best friends. I know it is truly heartbreaking. So sad. It's also so cute. Ginny brings him a get well card. I know. And she's still like totally shy and blushing, flabbergasted around him. Yeah, yeah. And then he's worrying about having seen the Grimm. And then there's another thing I wanted to mention. Oh, and then he's, he can't stop thinking about hearing his mother's voice. He says, it says, because Harry knew who that screaming voice belonged to now. He had heard her words, heard them over and over again during that night in the hours in the hospital wing while he lay awake, staring at the strips of moonlight on the ceiling. When the Dementors approached him, he heard the last moments of his mother's life, her attempts to protect him, Harry, from Lord Voldemort, and Voldemort's laughter before he murdered her. Harry dozed fitfully, sinking into dreams full of clammy, rotted hands and petrified, pleading, jerking awake to dwell again on his mother's voice. So this is like his worst memory coming up because of the Dementors. And yet he kind of wants to return to it to keep hearing Lily's voice. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so it's sad. Too much, honestly. It kills me. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. So he, where does he end up having the conversation with Lupin? Sorry, I forgot. No, it's okay. He's in the hospital wing that weekend on Monday. Lupin's back in class after being gone. He looks ill and thin. And he finds out what Snape assigned them. And he says, they don't have to do it. But Hermione goes, oh man, I already did it. Yeah. The Hermione's already done all this research on werewolves and how to recognize them. Keep that in mind. And they're studying hinky punk. And then at the end of class, Harry sort of stays for a second and he's talking to Lupin. There are a couple things in here in this interaction, I should say, that sort of broke my heart. Number one, Lupin feels so terrible that Harry's broom you know, went into the Whomping Willow and never made it out the same. Mm -hmm. 
I think he feels really bad about this, particularly because the Whomping Willow was placed on campus because of him. It said, yeah, that's one thing we learned. It says they planted the willow the year that Lupin started at Hogwarts. And we will find out why later. But yeah, so in a way, and I mean, Lupin already has a ton of just like guilt built into his personality. And this is just another thing. He's like, well, this is another thing I ruined for somebody. Right. And he goes to comfort Harry to squeeze his shoulder (gasps) and then pulls away cried there were two times when I actually shed tears reading these chapters and that was the first one too much and the the thing that's it that stems it is he says where is it I need to find it tree smashed it into bits when they get near me Harry stared at Lupin's desk his throat tight I can hear Voldemort murdering my mom Lupin made a sudden motion with his arm as though to grip Harry's shoulder, but thought better of it. There was a moment's silence then, and then they continue. Oh my God. This poor man is trying to be so professional and keep boundaries when his best friend's son is talking about his other best friends, you know, his best, James and Lily, he can hear them getting murdered. And he's, and like, can you imagine all the memories that are flooding back into the loop and just like finding out when this happened? And oh, this poor man, he's trying to be so This book is so dark. And I think I forgot about it until we started reading. I guess they all get really dark from here on out, but this book particularly is just a little like void of happiness. This is where it starts. This is where all this darkness starts because we're really starting to learn about the true backstory of Harry's life. Right. Um, so sort of moving on past that they lupin agrees to start giving harry dementor protection they're calling (laughs) they're calling them anti-dementor lessons because harry's like you know i get super affected by them i don't know why and if they ever come into another quidditch match like we're gonna lose the match again i'm gonna faint and i i don't know what to do and lupin's like well there's this you know i can teach you but it's really really hard and harry's like no no please teach me And then there's a moment, Harry also mentions Sirius. Oh, I actually had a question about Dementors really quick. Mm -hmm. So there's a description of them on, and Lupin saying like, where is it? He's talking about the Dementors to Harry. And he says something along the lines of, I can't find it when I'm skimming, but he says something along the lines of, you know, when a Dementor like finishes their work, on something like that person ends up like sort of becoming like the Dementor like devoid of happiness and anything and I'm wondering like how do Dementors get created do they just spawn up out of nothing like Peeves the Poltergeist or do they breed or do Dementors create other Dementors? I think they well I have two theories I think my logical theory is that they breed because they seem to so have minds. They seem to have thoughts and like some sort of biology about them. Because mm-hmm. in an earlier chapter, Dumbledore says, like, I'm gonna go let the Dementors know we search the castle and happen. Which tells me like you can communicate with them. Yeah, they're sentient for sure. Right. My sort of illogical no facts to support this is that maybe they're sort of spawned out of like tragic events you know i love that thought i mean i don't but i do (laughs) something awful happens i'm talking like you know national scale tragedy 
and there's 500 Dementors reached, released into the world. And like the tragedy and the emotion and the sadness like manifests into a thing. Yeah. yeah I love that thought. That's pretty brilliant. I accept that. That is not canon, but that is. But I accept it. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's McKenna's fanon. Then there's a mention of Sirius and Lupin's briefcase. He like fumbles his briefcase and it slips off the desk. There's Lupin, every time Harry mentions Sirius to Lupin, he has like a weird reaction. It's going to happen later too. And I think this, again, stems from the, not only the guilt that there are so many things he's keeping from Harry, but there's this one thing that he's keeping from Dumbledore and it makes him antsy, you know? Yeah. So, yes. So he agrees to teach Harry the Patronus charm. We don't know what it's called yet. After the holidays, the Dementors aren't sent away like they are in the movie after these Quidditch, this Quidditch match. They're just, again sort of chastised and forbidden from the grounds. They have to stay on the outskirts of the grounds, but who's to say they won't come in again? Ron and Hermione stay for Christmas to keep Harry company. So sweet. Very sweet. The three bestest friends. Yeah, they're just, they're good. They're very supportive friends. There's another Hogsmeade weekend and this doesn't really happen like it does in the film. So Harry no, is not. it happens so differently in the film. And it, I, you know what? I think the way it happens in the book is actually very sweet because in the film, Harry's sort of like trying to, he's trying to sneak out to Hogsmeade under the invisibility cloak. And Fred and George just kind of happen upon him sneaking out and they give him the Marauder's Map. Mm-hmm. This way, Harry's headed in the book, Harry's headed back to the Gryffindor common room to go like sulk by himself while everybody goes to Hogsmeade. And Fred and George are like waiting for him. They're like waiting to catch him. And they've been planning to bequeath him the Marauder's Map. And I think it's really sweet and it makes it almost more thoughtful. I love Fred and George so much. Oh yeah. They give him the Marauder's Map, which... You tap it with your wand and you say, I solemnly swear I am up to no good. And on the map is basically like an, a picture, a map of Hogwarts. And you can see like people pacing around, walking around. You can see where people are moving within the castle. Yes. You can also see secret passages in and out of the castle. What's interesting, what's interesting to me about the Marauder's Map is that it seems that Fred and George have mostly used this for passage purposes. Because if they hadn't, and they were like maybe more akin to looking at people moving around the map, they would have noticed that Peter Pettigrew has been following Ron around for two years. Yes. That is a big, actually, plot hole of the Marauder's Map in the Harry Potter series is that Fred and George never notice Peter Pettigrew being so close to Ron all the time. Because if they had just seen the name Peter Pettigrew, like they probably wouldn't have really thought anything of it because that whole story about Peter and Sirius facing off after James and Lily were killed is not super, we're gonna find out that's not super common knowledge because fudge and then McGonagall have to explain it to Madame Rose Murta. she doesn't already know it but yeah they don't somehow they don't notice that there's always this somebody who's really close to Ron in the dormitory named Peter Pettigrew they like don't notice and that's a huge plot hole and we and never really get an explanation for it something you would think they would notice 
Right, because couldn't you see Fred and George teasing Ron? Who's your boyfriend, Peter Pettigrew, who's always following you around? Yeah, you know? like sleeping in your bed. <laughs> right, exactly. So it, it it's a huge plot hole. But there are a lot of there's some fan and explanations, but we never get a canon explanation. My thought is they were just primarily using that to know the secret passages because it seems like they have the passages memorized, which tells me that, and they're willing to give up the map. I mean, I know Harry is beloved and adored by them, but they're willing to part ways with the map. So that tells me that they don't need it for their particular mischief purposes anymore. Yeah. They got it. They know where the secret passages in and out are, and now they're good to go. Because you're right. Because if they were using it to like spy on people's whereabouts and that was their primary purpose, they would not be parting with the map because they are missing that. They would just tell Harry where the passages are and move along. Yeah, exactly. So that's not that you're right. I don't think that's their purpose. I Um, did take a note. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was just going to say, I have another question. Yeah. This map, they took it from Filch's office. It's been there since around 77 1977 1978 how did they figure out how to open it i think that this proves that fred and george are exceptional wizards yeah and we don't think of it in the same way that we you know think hermione's an exceptional wizard or her witch i suppose or percy's very talented and smart and good at all the things like fred george and ron do not get a lot of credit with Mrs. Weasley. She sort of Mm -hmm. always writes those three of her children off. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a big detriment to the family because Ron ends up like being a hero. Mm -hmm. I mean, his, the part he plays with Harry and Hermione cruxes is you can't deny that. Yeah. And Fred and George are just so like smart in their own right. You know, and it's their mischievousness. They sort of have this like different kind of intellectual curiosity that I think yeah. is just wildly overlooked. Totally. Because we just think of them as the, the laughter, the jokes. But it's, it's, you're right. It's actually brilliance. Just it's, it's brilliance for the sort of mischief. And you're right. You're right. You're right. And if you think of all the things that they end up selling in the joke shop, they had to bewitch all of those things. They had to come, come up, up with, with that the magic. magic. Yeah. Yeah, that's like proprietary magic to them. So they are brilliant. We just don't see them in that way because we have a different expectation of what brilliance is because we totally. compare them to people like Hermione. Yeah. And even it, I, I mean, it said, Ron says in the first couple books, like even Fred and George get really good marks. So they're good students too, but that's not their passion. Like the book smart stuff isn't their passion, even though they excel in it. It's like their passion is you're right, figuring out this other aspect of magic and they they do excel in that. And it's very cool. You're right. I mean, they don't get enough credit. It's also their friendship with Harry is so understated. Oh in yeah. The entire series and every, you know, all the time. Like we just don't think of how close they were. You know, but they weren't that far off in age from Harry and Ron. And I do think they were quite close. They were, and they treat Harry very well. Yes, they love Harry. Yeah. And they feel comfortable joking and making fun of him and treating him like he's family. Yeah, absolutely. There's this kind of interesting part where you talked a lot about this quote when we were in Chamber of Secrets. Do you want to take it away? You know what I'm talking about. No, it's okay. You can say it. 
I, I was just write the say, whole thing down. <laughs> I was just going to say, Harry, went, so friend George, George give Harry the map. He, they're like, oh, take this passageway. We're already at the one-eyed witch statue. Like that takes you straight to Honeyduke's cellar. And Harry's got the map and he's looking at it. He recalls this thing that Mr. Weasley said in Dumbledore's office, or I guess it was McGonagall's office at the end of Chamber of Secrets, where he's sort of admonishing Ginny for trusting the diary. And he says, you know, you shouldn't trust anything that thinks for itself if you don't see where it keeps its brain yeah and harry recalls that and he's like oh i guess that would apply to this map but fred and george have been using it for years and they're fine and they're fine so he uses it anyway i think it's also interesting the sort of like magical items that harry's going to collect along the way this is my favorite one like exceptionally useful when it gets down to the real business of hunting horcruxes and like figuring stuff out in the castle so i think the first major one is the invisibility cloak obviously and then Mm -hmm. i think this is the next major sort of item that he's gonna collect that will become useful this is my favorite item that harry collects just personally if i could have one real item from the wizarding world it would be either the cloak or the marauder's map because just the sheer brilliance it had to take all of the marauders to make this piece of magic is really cool and we we do not get to hear nearly enough about it how they like sat down and had to make this map from nothing yeah so cool so brilliant so harry sneaks out to hogsmeade and he gets to honeydukes and he climbs up the cellar and he finds ron and hermione and he tells them about the map and Ron's like, what the heck? Like <laughs> they never gave me the map. Why'd they give it to you? Fine. But clearly Harry needed it for Hogsmeade, but still it's like Ron's their brother. And Hermione is really apprehensive. Hermione is very cautious about everything this year. We're going to see it soon, soon after two with the broomstick, but she's very cautious. She's like, you should, you need to give this up. What if this fell into Sirius Black's hands and he learned about all these passageways? Um, little does she know that Sirius is one of the people who helped create the map and knows all the passageways anyway we should say that when you open the map it says Messrs Mooney actual quote because it's different than the film can you teach me blah blah they go to Hogsmeade Messrs Mooney Wormtail Padfoot and Prongs purveyors of aids to magical mischief makers are proud to present the Marauder's Map there's so, yeah it's so heightened and they, it sounds like they're royalty it's so funny oh boys i wonder if lily and james hadn't have died if if james or sirius would have given it to harry while he was at hogwarts oh oh if they didn't die would they have given it to him yeah would they have captured it back and given it to him like as adults gone back to capture it from Filch's office and giving it to him. Could you have seen them like doing like back at it again? They sneak into the castle and grab the map. Somebody write a fan fiction. I love that. (laughs) I love that. You know what? I actually, I, I had canon. What if this is not canon anywhere? What if like Filch got it one time and just thought it was like a piece of paper and like confiscated and just stuffed it in a corner of his office and they had to go get it back and then later he figured because it's in Filch's like cabinet for like really dangerous items it's not just like on his desk so he there was he knew something about it where it was like really bad or maybe he just saw you know the marauders with it and he was like these guys are troublemakers so I'm gonna put it in the special cabinet I don't know anyway 
yeah, it's kind of funny. But Fred and George got it and they figured it out, which you're right, is brilliant. And then... Why did Harry not take the cloak to Hogsmeade? He should have taken the cloak to Hogsmeade. What a dumb... It, that's why in the movie, it makes more sense. Because he's got the cloak. Because yeah, he's totally. got the cloak. Are you telling me, like, everybody's on high alert to make sure that Sirius and Harry do not converge? And, it, like, nobody notices Harry's in Hogsmeade? <laughs> yeah. But, oh God, this entire exchange in the three broomsticks absolutely breaks my heart. It's rough. Madame Rose Murta, you know, Harry and Hermione and Ron are in the three broomsticks having a butterbeer. In walks Hagrid, Filch, McGonagall, and Cornelius Fudge all together to come hang out, which low-key, kind of cute. Fudge is in town. He's going to get, you know, a little, he gets like a rum and then he goes back up to the castle to have dinner with Dumbledore. So I guess he probably sees McGonagall, Hagrid, and Flitwick going to the Three Broomsticks and is like, oh, let me join you. But how cute that the professors are hanging out and that Hagrid gets to hang out with them. What do you think? Well, he's a professor now. Exactly. What do you think Fudge is talking to Dumbledore about? Do you think they're going to discuss the Dementors coming on campus? I believe so. And maybe this deal with Buckbeak, which subsequently doesn't it doesn't seem like fudge is very involved we sort of get the sense in the film that fudge is really involved in this deal with buckbeak this ordeal where buckbeak attacked malfoy but he doesn't seem like he's very but this is like below him in the book there's another committee maybe umbridge is handling this one for him yeah well it's the it's actually the committee of disorderly creatures or something yeah i have it written down somewhere i wrote it down maybe i didn't write it down yeah, there's a committee that's dealing with it. But so they're, they go to the three room six. They're talking, Madame Rose Murta sits down at the table with the adults. Harry, or I'm sorry, Hermione and Ron have hidden Harry. And under the table. Under the table, which means he overhears this entire exchange. And it absolutely breaks my heart that this is the way he has to hear about all this stuff. Rose Murta goes, so Madame Rose Murta knew the Marauders when they were at school. She was working at the three broomsticks at that point. And she says, of all the people to go to the dark side, Sirius Black was the last I'd have thought. I mean, I remember him when he was a boy at Hogwarts. If you'd told me when he was what he was going to become, I'd have said you'd had too much mead. Why do people think Sirius did it? Because all signs point to him. But yeah, it, it... there's uh, the, the evidence is indisputable. But yeah, so they all discuss the entire backstory of... We don't get to know about the prophecy yet. They just say Dumbledore found out that Voldemort was after James and Lily because one of his spies told him, Snape, James and Lily going to hiding. And then we get a little bit of information about the Fidelius charm. Can we talk about that real quick? Yeah. So the Fidelius charm is this really complicated charm that that contains a secret inside a single living soul. It's really, even with this information in this chapter, the stuff surrounding this charm in canon is very ambiguous. It's not like fully really explained ever, but basically surface level, you, you keep a secret hidden in somebody's soul. And unless that person willingly divulges that secret to another person, that secret is hidden from the world. So for example, like the location of where Lily and James are, Flitwick says, you know, Voldemort could have gone up and pressed his face against their sitting room window and would never have known that they were there. It's almost, I think, and we never really get a visual, like they never tell us like, oh, you couldn't see their house. 
We don't know how the charm sort of concealed them, but if we're thinking about how it concealed, conceals Grimwald Place, it like slides out from behind the other, you know, houses. Right. I think it's something like that where you could not see the house or it appeared abandoned or something. Yeah. And unless you knew the secret from the secret keeper, you could not have access to James and Lily. And so that's a little bit about the Fidelio's charm. And then, you know, as far as everybody knows, Sirius was the secret keeper. James said, you know, Sirius would die before he gave up the secret and that he was planning to go into hiding himself. But not a week later after Dumbledore cast the charm, somebody gave them up. They think it was Sirius and Voldemort comes and he kills them. And we learned that Dumbledore offered to be the secret keeper. If, if the Potters had said, oh yeah, Dumbledore, why don't you be our secret keeper? That would have literally, they wouldn't be dead. That would have right. solved everything. It would have solved everything. That would have solved everything. In fact, if they had chosen to just keep Sirius the secret keeper, it would have solved everything. Yeah, I also wonder, I mean, I know they were kind of all being hunted to die, but I do sort of wonder why Sirius himself was planning to go into hiding. He thought that he was a pretty high level target this is, and that's why they end up changing it to Peter Pettigrew later. Like Sirius convinces them, oh no, don't pick me, pick Peter. They'll never see it coming because P Sirius considered himself as a member of the Black family and like sort of a traitor to his bloodline to be a higher level target for the Death Eaters than Peter Pettigrew. So that's why he was sort of, I assume that's why he was sort of planning to go into hiding. We also oh, and learned, I wonder who, go ahead, sorry. I wonder who Sirius is. I wonder who his secret keeper would have been. I don't know that he would have gone into hiding using the Fidelius charm. Okay, we need this opens up a whole nother can of worms because there's conflicting information in all these books of like when the Potters actually went into hiding and what it looked like before the Fidelius charm because we know that they were only like they only use the Fidelius charm as a mode of hiding for a week, like barely a week. But then there are other sources that say they went into hiding when Lily got pregnant. Well, then they were in hiding for over, like almost two years. And did they go somewhere? They were clearly still at home by the time they used the Fidelius charm. So what did hiding look like? How did they do that? Did they just stay home and kind of stay out of things, but call it hiding? And then some sources say they went into hiding when Harry, not they waited until Harry was born, which to me makes more sense because they were in the Order of the Phoenix. So I think James would have at least still been you know, involved with the order, even when Lily was pregnant. And it just, it's like, there's, we don't get enough information. It's, we get conflicting accounts. If it was me, I would have gone to America. But like, they wanted to help fight. Yeah, but their son was the chosen one, you know? Tough, I mean, they didn't spot. know that till later. Right, like yeah, that week, they, they wouldn't have found that out until the week that Dumbledore came and was like, that he's after you. Unless, I mean, unless, that's the other thing. It's like, did he tell them about the prophecy earlier him, them, and the Longbottoms, and they were like, we're just gonna have to wait to see who he goes after. Like, we don't know any of this. Yeah, it, there's a lot of plot holes. There, it, it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, so one of the things I think is really interesting in this exchange is that Fudge says that Voldemort could come back to full power with the help of Sirius. Thank you. And then literally a year later, Fudge denies that there's any chance that Voldemort is back. Yeah. And they're still pinning things on Sirius Black. Totally. And and it's the way he words it, I think, is like with the help of his most trusted servant, 
which is what happens. It's just not serious. Right. That's another interesting thing that we find out is Fudge is like, oh, and then the crazy thing was when I went to go see him in Azkaban, he seemed totally normal. He didn't seem mad. And he asked for my newspaper. That's going to become very important. Sirius sees the newspaper. With the Weasleys on it. With the Weasleys in Egypt on it. That is going to become very important. So we pro- this is probably not a conversation for today, but I do want to talk about why Peter would have chosen the Weasleys. Ooh, okay. As the like family to attach himself to. That is a very interesting conversation. Because they're like a prominent wizarding family yeah. who are like quite involved and highly visible. He could have gone and, I don't know, been like a gutter rat somewhere, you know, yeah. like off the face of the actual earth. But he wanted to sort of stay informed on what was going on. Yeah, but he wanted to be in the middle. You're right. That's a really good point I never thought about. That's kind of slimy. So that kind of brings up, well, really the end of this, the last thing I wrote was poor Harry. That's a revelation. (laughs) Same. I wrote poor Harry. Oh my God, this poor boy hearing it this way. Because- That's under a table. So many things. Not only does he find out how his parents died, he finds out that it was because of a betrayal from somebody who was supposed to be their best friend and the best man at their wedding. And his godfather. And his his godfather. godfather. Oh my God, poor Harry. So Harry's reveling in this. I think it says he doesn't even remember how he got out of the three broomsticks and back to Hogwarts because he's so mad. And that sort of transitions us into chapter 11. This book is particularly interesting in the way the chapters transition because I feel in the other books, every chapter was sort of like a succinct sort of like story within the broader book. And in this book in particular, we're getting a lot of, we end the chapter with Harry really mad and now we're going to pick up with Harry really mad. Yeah, you know? you're right. You're absolutely right, McKenna. And it, I think that has, I think it has to do with the fact that we are now getting into more story that is going to be more pertinent for the rest of the series. But you're right. One and two were more episodic almost. And now it's more like through story plot line that, you know, carries all the way through and it's worth noting this book is a significant bit longer than the other books and I think a lot of that has to do with us living inside of Harry's head more we're experiencing a lot more of Harry's thoughts and we're going to continue experiencing more of Harry's like truly deep thoughts and I think that's partially because he's growing up right he's entering into emotional maturity and so we're going to kind of see him like kind of go through his like puberty as he's sort of like his emotional range is widening and because these are told from his perspective we're going to live in his brain a lot more than we were in one and two yeah absolutely and so we kind of pick up chapter 11 the firebolt still with harry like reeling about this revelation and he just can't get over himself and i wrote down like i literally wrote down it is so refreshing to see ron have a level head about Sirius and Harry because in the movies we never see him have a level head about anything yeah you're right and Ron is kind of the one who's like talking Harry off the wall who's let's bring it back to reality you know and Harry he's like he wants revenge he's angry and And I wonder he goes back to when Malfoy said oh I'd be out trying to kill him if I were you and he's like oh my god Malfoy knows Lucius told him Malfoy knows. Right. 
And he sort of, he sympathizes with that he thought. He sides with Malfoy's thought, yes. Yeah. And I wonder, obviously, you know, we can't blame all of Harry's bad character qualities on the piece of Voldemort that's living inside of him. Yeah. But that, it does make me wonder that like angry, vengeful side that is like really coming to, into play right now, if not even just a little bit of that is influenced by the piece of Voldemort's soul that resides inside of Harry. Yeah. Man, crazy. So I I also kind of wrote down the note that Harry's going to, I think one of the things that makes Harry so mad is that so many people knew, people who he feels love and trust him, the Weasleys, McGonagall, Lupin, Dumbledore, Hagrid. Hagrid. He's angry at Hagrid. He can't even believe Hagrid would keep this from him. Yeah. He's going to feel this way again after Dumbledore dies and Deathly Hallows and he realizes there's so much Dumbledore never told him. Yeah. And I think something that's really important to Harry is that he feels in the know. Yes. He feels that and it's not even just and I think we can also sort of relate it back to people perceiving him to be weak when he faces Dementors. It's like people perceiving him to be capable enough to be in the know. And when he feels like people don't think he can handle stuff like this and don't tell him, he feels extra betrayed and hurt. Right. And it's a common theme throughout his life where he just can't, like, he can't fathom. And I get it as somebody who's experienced childhood trauma when you feel like you've had to grow up really quickly because you're facing the harsh truths of your life and then you sort of encounter people who want to coddle you because of those things that you've been through and they're not giving you the actual room to grow and to be in the know about things, it is really frustrating. And I think he probably feels a lot of that. Hey, I lived through a terrible life with the Dursleys. I can handle the truth here, you know, like nothing can be worse than what I've already experienced. And me having to find out you all lied to me about it is a lot worse. Totally. So in this rage, he's like, we need to go talk to Hagrid. I need to know why he didn't tell me. And he's pissed. He's like ready to go yell at Hagrid. Turns up they find Hagrid and he's sobbing, poor guy, because he gets this letter from, I did write it down, but I wrote it down in a note in my phone. It's the Committee for Disposal of Dangerous Creatures that basically Buckbeak is going to be put on trial for what he did to Malfoy. And then Hagrid also mentions that all these committee members are like in Lucius Malfoy's pocket and that there's no way Buckbeak makes it out of this alive. And he's just bereft. He's very upset. It's not gonna, it's not going well for Buckbeak. So no, it's not. So Harry backs down and sort of comforts Hagrid instead. And then he talks a little bit about his Azkaban experience and his experience with the Dementors. And he also says this thing where he's like, you know, and these Dementors are around the outskirts of the grounds all the time. And I just feel like crap. And that made me realize Hagrid is subjected to deal with the Dementors more as somebody who lives sort of on the outskirts of the grounds and teaches class on the outskirts of the grounds. Yeah. And I... It's so it's interesting. So the description of Azkaban sounds a lot like somebody who's living with a chronic mental illness. Mm-hmm. And the author actually experienced severe depression, and the Dementors she wrote them to to represent depression, and yeah. Azkaban to represent the isolation that you feel. They actually all go to the library, and they're looking for precedents in other cases where 
they were dealing with, you know, creatures to see if they can help him some way with some research, which is very sweet of them. And kind of selfless of Harry to put aside what he's dealing with to help Hagrid with this. So when Harry's having these conversations about his parents being betrayed and Sirius being the one doing it, Scabbers is there. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Like, does Peter have a grow? Do you think he feels any like level of remorse at all? Peter's defining character trait is that he is only ever looking for ways to protect his own skin, to save his own butt. Even if he did feel a little bit of remorse, it is not enough to outweigh his cowardliness to need to protect himself. So I think Peter's hearing this and not feeling remorse so much as he's feeling like, what if they're on to me? Like it's about him. It's more selfish, I think. (sighs) He's the worst. And then it's Christmas. And Harry gets a firebolt, a new broom. Right. And we remember Harry was just looking at this firebolt, right? When he was staying at... In Diagon Alley. Yes. So here's my question. First of all, I love that Sirius is in the middle of escaping, being recaptured and going to prison. And is like, I'm just going to pop over and buy my godson a present that's exorbitantly expensive. Yeah. What, like, like, how did you have access to your money? That's a great question, actually, that I don't think is explained immediately or maybe at all until like, she might've explained it in an interview or something. Because Sirius's funds that he has is not from his family because he got disowned. His funds that he has are from his uncle who passed away and left him all his money because he knew that Sirius was disowned and tried to help him out, which got him banished from the family posthumously. And so Sirius's money, is, is it in Gringotts? Did he have it just like out somewhere hidden in the forest? How did he get it? How did he waltz into Diagon Alley to get this broom? I sort of feel like the Gringotts goblins would let him in. I feel like they're all about money and they would just let him in. Because it's not of any consequence to them. But there are guards in Gringotts. Like, so very question. And how did he get it to Harry? Right, exactly. Did he like waltz in as a dog and just drop it at the foot of his bed and walk back out? Or like, like how? Did he give it to Hedwig? We have no idea. Questions, we have questions. Perhaps Um, the, perhaps an owl, perhaps Hedwig delivered it. Yeah, like how? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's not really well explained. So yeah, so just way way to go, Sirius, doing the most extra thing you can possible when you're like on the run from the law. But Harry's ecstatic because A, he was down a broom after the Whomping Willow and B, this is the best broom in the world and hundreds of galleons. And we know from the from the sort of muggle money calculator, hundreds of gallons is not like hundreds of dollars. It's like thousands and thousands of dollars. dollars. Yeah. 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 Like I think I was doing research for a fan fiction thing one time and I read like with the conversion, like a 1500 galleon a year salary was like comparable to a $30,000 a year muggle salary. Like it's the exchange rate is not one-to-one by any So this broom is exorbitantly expensive. And then, yeah, so Harry's very happy about it. And then there's this whole fight with Scabbers and Crookshanks. Crookshanks is still out to get Scabbers, doesn't look very good. He looks very skinny, very sick, very nervous. 
And then there's this really cute communal Christmas lunch with the professors. So there is a lot to unpack here. There's a lot. Um, First Um, of all, Lupin's not there. Lupin is not there. He's notably absent. There are 12 attendees, but Mm -hmm. not really 12. There are 13 attendees because Peter Pettigrew is there. He's just in animagus form and nobody knows. Trelawney makes some predictions during this dinner. But now there are 14 with Trelawney. No, there's only 12 there. And then Trelawney comes and it's 13. Oh, yes. But but there's actually 14. 14, So her her prediction actually isn't about this dinner. That's very important to know. But yes, continue. What dinner do you think it's about? Oh, it's fully about after the Battle of the Seven Potters. 13 sit down to die and the first to rise will be the first to die. Lupin leaves the table to go search for Mad-Eye's body. So I actually, I read when I researched that it is about this dinner really and Dumbledore's the first to rise and he's the first out of the group to die okay question I most things I've seen have been about that being about after the battle of the seven potters but she says it she doesn't really say it as a prediction so much as you know like when you say like an apple a day keeps the doctor away it's more like that for her it's like a a common sort of phrase and she's like oh you know what they say when 13 sit down to die and the first to rise is the first to die it's not like a prediction it's like a I don't know what do you like an idiom that she just uses like a mantra <laughs> yeah it's like a mantra so I don't know like so it it's could apply- a- that's not so far-fetched and that's another thing I wrote down is I think it could apply to multiple things and again this is why I sort of don't take Trelawney with full stock because that's actually a biblical reference in regards to Jesus and the 12 disciples sitting down to dine, Jesus is the first to stand up and he dies shortly thereafter. I did not know that. That is awesome. I yeah, mean, that's a yeah. biblical reference. That's so, very cool. <laughs> and so I think it is about this dinner because they do sit down to dine. Dumbledore is the first to rise. and he no, also- no, 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 no. Harry and Ron are the first to rise. And she goes, which one of you got up first? Remember? I thought it was Dumbledore gets up first because he no. speaks. It's... Oh, but he, he stands up, but he doesn't leave the table. And then she makes this big fuss. First to rise. She doesn't say first to leave the room. That's true. But she does make a really big fuss when Harry and Ron. But that's what I'm saying is I think she's inconsistent. I don't even think she like knows. Do you know what I mean? I think she makes predictions kind of like. The other thing I think is interesting is she basically predicts that Lupin is not long out for the job which again that's not really a great prediction for somebody who's supposed to be a seer because no lupin is not long out for this job but neither have the last two well not even the last two the last many defense against the dark arts teachers and it is like notorious since like the 50s yeah since 1960 there is a sort of rumor or like a lore amongst the students and faculty that position is cursed and it kind of was and it is cursed by tom riddle by tom riddle because dumbledore wouldn't give him the post as defense against the dark arts teacher and he wanted it and so he cursed the job Mm -hmm. and that is a big reason why dumbledore does not post snape in that position yes because he needs snape snape is like for better or for worse, a vital part of the story. Totally. So she makes this prediction and this is what's hard about her. It's not wrong, but it's not right because she said it. 
you know it's like (laughs) yeah and she's she makes she does these things a lot you know of course she predicted the two prophecies and that's a very big deal but a lot of her other sort of like smaller predictions they're not wrong but they're not right because she said it you know or they're not right in the way that she intends them or says them to be they end up right in other ways which is why you saying the dinner after the seven potters yes that's totally true but I don't think she like saw it and meant it that way. No, it's just, she says these things sort of off the cuff that come to be true, but not because she saw them. Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. So they, so Harry and Ron end up leaving the dinner. That must've been a very awkward dinner. Like Super students awkward. and teachers and cute, Trelawney. And- a very cute <laughs> idea. But then, you know, Snape started talking, Snape and Dumbledore started talking about Lupin's potion and Snape, you know, clearly Snape has some bad boy information he's sitting on that he wants to get out. Oh, he is a chatty Kathy. He wants to say it so bad. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous. And so Harry and Ron, they leave the table and Hermione stays back because she wants to talk to Professor McGonagall. And we find out shortly thereafter that Hermione has told McGonagall that Harry received this broom the firebolt for Christmas and has no idea who sent it and her and Minerva together sort of think that it might have been sent by Sirius and it might be cursed in some way and they're right it was sent by Sirius and honestly the boys are so pissed at her for tattling but good on her that was the right thing to do she made the Gryffindor call stood up against her friends and did what she felt was right and it it was what you know Hermione her like chief operating principle is keep Harry safe yeah keep Harry happy with me yeah and she was sort of executing on this (laughs) yeah yeah totally it was the right thing to do which brings us into chapter 12 and Oliver Wood is just the most well-meaning jock ever oh I just never realized what a jock he was until this chapter he's such um, a jock he's he looks so McGon- he looks McGonagall in the face he's like I don't want Harry to die I just I'm okay with him falling off his broom as long as he catches the snitch <laughs> right he's just oh he's so in, kind of intense about Quidditch and it makes him insensitive to the situation which is you know for better or worse that's just Wood's personality I suppose yeah. And I think Harry kind of like senses that he's like in a little bit of hot water because Wood's obviously not very happy with him. And I guess like, I understand it, right? Because basically everything in Hogwarts is in some way always about Harry Potter, right? Like everything all the time is about Harry. And I think some kids like revel in it. Like I think Fred and George think it's funny and they just kind of go with the flow in life. And I think other people, they probably can't handle that it's the Harry show 24-7. Yeah. It's his last year, Wood, right? Yeah, so he's his seventh year. And he's like, I'll win this damn Quidditch Cup. He just wants to win the Quidditch Cup. Like he just wants to leave on a high note, finish out his school year on a high note. And like Harry's making it a little difficult, not his fault, but it is a little difficult for him. And I think Wood's just like, frustrated because Harry's supposed to be his like special asset that he put all this time into training and Harry is just being more of a hindrance to him but it's not (laughs) Harry's fault (laughs) it's not but what is so funny he's just like one track mind I love him he means so well he's a charming jock he's such a charming jock I really love Oliver Wood's character we don't stand Sean Biggerstaff but we do like Oliver Wood 
We find out again that Hermione knows Lupin is a werewolf. Yes, she almost spills the beans. She basically says to them, like, well, it's obvious, isn't it? She says, well, it's obvious. Like, don't you know? And they're like, what are you talking about? And she's like, never mind. Like, what the hell? I think she, so she doesn't advertise it. And I think this is probably a mix of compassion because Hermione knows what it feels like to be the odd one out in situations. And I think she feels for Lupin. I also think it's a little selfish that she has a great teacher who she's learning a lot from who thinks the world of her. Lupin thinks Hermione's very bright and very special. Right. I think in a lot of ways, Hermione probably reminds him a lot of Lily, just her like raw talent for magic and her intellectual curiosity. And she doesn't want to lose that, you know? And it's like just last chapter, she told on Harry for having this like item that could be dangerous. And she's like, totally keeping Lupin secret. And you're right. Maybe there is a little bit of selfish ambition in there. I, it's really interesting that you bring up Lily because, and you said like, you know, Hermione feels like the odd one out and she's got some compassion for Lupin that way. I think that's probably, you know, Lupin and Lily were prefects together and it's sort of read between the lines insinuated that they were friends and were close. We don't get a line in the movie. Like he's like, oh, like I knew your mother and she was super kind to me when nobody else was like, that's nowhere in the book. But it's insinuated that they were friends at least. And I think that's probably what bonded them is at some point Lily had to have found out about Lupin and she's in a marginalized group as a Muggleborn in a time when it was really sort of- Very uncool to be- Very uncool to be a Muggleborn. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that probably sort of brought them together as friends. Maybe that's me just sort of extrapolating a little bit, but- I th- I no, I think it's, I think it's very true. I think she probably also feels like, you know, Lupin's not hurting anybody. He's yeah. well contained in whatever she's way. she's probably put two and two together about Snape bringing him that potion. Yeah, she's probably like, well, and I think the kids have a lot of trust in Dumbledore. If Dumbledore totally. says it's okay, then it's totally. okay. Totally. She's not like about to go telling all the students that wouldn't be right. Right. Like somebody does later, an adult who should know better. (laughs) Horrible. Anyway, after this, Harry has his first anti-dementor lesson. And there are so many things in here that just, I cried in this chapter. It it really is. I physically wept. So Harry has, he has great difficulty with the Patronus charm, which is at first... Yes. Which is really interesting because this is really, I mean, Harry has a couple of charms that are really become like his spells that he has a great affinity for. Of course, the joke is always stupefy and expelliarmus. Harry loves those stupid spells. Yeah. But he also is like quite gifted at the Patronus later on. Absolutely. So let's talk about the Patronus, the, the what? Let's talk about the Patronus charm really quick. Lupin says this is really advanced magic, way beyond like OWL proficiency levels for a wizard. There's no evidence that as a normal part of the school year, this would be taught as a Hogwarts, like a part of the Hogwarts curriculum. So I don't think that most students leave Hogwarts already knowing this charm. This is an extra special thing that Harry is getting. And Lupin is particularly proficient in the charm because of his experience with the First Order of the Phoenix. But a couple things about the Patronus charm. Even the most qualified witch or wizard can struggle with it. It's really highly advanced magic. Harry is one of the youngest casters of the charm ever, recorded at least. The Patronus charm can take two forms, which we will find out later. The the corporeal form and the incorporeal form. So an incorporeal Patronus does not have like a form, a body. It's just like this sort of silver wisp 
and it can form itself into a shield and act as like a sort of shield against a dementor. A you good have, big yeah. visual of that is Aberforth in the seventh yes. movie. That doesn't happen in the book, but in the movie when he... Or, yeah, or Harry at the... Oh, no, but he does have a stag to do that. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Aberforth is a really good example of that. And then the corporeal form is when it takes for, the form of an animal guardian. There are at least two functions to the Patronus charm. It can act as a shield against Dementors or like dark forces. So the dark force or the Dementor can feed off of the joy and the happiness of the charm, which cannot feel pain or, you know, horrible feelings or anything. So it protects you. It's also used as a messenger, which we're not going to see this yet. But later in the series, we find out that Dumbledore has figured out how to use the Patronus charm as a messenger where you can send it and speak through it to other people. He came up with that, which is brilliant and amazing. And he teaches it to the first order of the Phoenix and then subsequently the second order of the Phoenix. And that's how they communicate with each other through Patronus charms. We it's don't really so get to- It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And we never get to see that. I mean, we see it in the movie, but it's not explained. That's like something specific to the order of the Phoenix because Dumbledore figured it out. That is one of my favorite canon facts from the books. I wish um, Lupin could have sent Sirius Patronus and Azkaban. Yeah, yeah. Like why, well, would it somehow, it's, that's a really good question. Like, why didn't he? I mean, Sirius wouldn't have been able to send one back. He got his wand taken away. But, but yeah, you can send him as a messenger. Only the pure, it, so there's a little bit of contradicting information. Only, there's lore like on the wiki and wizarding world that like only the pure of heart can cast the Patronus charm successfully. And if you try and cast one, but you're not pure of heart, it'll, this is in the, again, this is part of the myth of how the Patronus was created in like Greek, not Greek mythology, like the medieval middle ages. If you try and cast one and you're not pure of heart, it'll like instead turn into flesh eating maggots that like eat your body. <laughs> we never see an example of that in the book, but that's part of the lore. But we um, know that the, the Death Eaters cannot produce them. Most Death Eaters cannot produce them. The two that can are, and I wouldn't necessarily call her a Death Eater, but Dolores Umbridge can produce a Patronus and Snape can. Yeah. Because they have happy memories. Like I would call Dolores like a happy person. She's evil, <laughs> but she's happy about it. <laughs> she's evil. She's evil, period. I also think that she believed that she was doing the right thing. Yeah, that's true. In her own like twisted way. She was definitely a follower, not a leader. Yes. And I think that is in one of the ways why her heart can be remain a little pure enough yes. to produce a Patronus. Yeah. Yeah. So that's some facts about the Patronus charm. So it's very, very advanced, but Harry does it. He does it. He does have difficulty and the first goes are not as great. And I think why it's so difficult for Harry is he doesn't have a lot of like really strong, tremendously good, happy memories. Yeah. And he also, when he encounters the Dementor, he hears the voices of his mother and his father. Yes. So there's an instance. So the first time he faces the Bogart that is in the shape of the Dementor, he faints and he hears his mother's voice, which I have, I have questions about why, maybe it's just a trauma response for him now, but like why the Bogart in the form of the Dementor is able to affect him like a normal Dementor would. I wonder about that. And maybe it's just the fear and again, the trauma response, but it's the fact that he can hear his parents' voices is that's sort of weird that's coming from even the Bogart. But 
and he also says this really interesting thing where he's like, I, he like, you know, he says he didn't want to hear the voice of his dying mother. And then there's ellipses and then it says, or did he? Yeah. He like, doesn't know whether or not he wants to sort of relive that horrible memory just to be able to hear Lily's voice. And then after he has a go and he hears Lily's voice, he tries again and he faints again. But this time he hears James fighting off Voldemort and he says it to Lupin. This is where I cried. He, oh God, (laughs) he says it to Lupin. Where is it? I heard my dad, Harry mumbled. That's the first time I've ever heard him. He tried to take on Voldemort himself to give my mom time to run for it. Harry suddenly realized that there were tears on his face mingling with the sweat. He bent his face low as possible, wiping them off on his robes, pretending to do up his shoelace so that Lupin wouldn't see. Lupin says, you heard James, said Lupin in a strange voice, and I burst into tears. (laughs) Oh my god, this poor man. It's too much. Because he would have never known. No, he wouldn't have. What happened to James until Harry, like the way it went down until Harry just said it. But Harry hears his mom and his dad. So sad. And then Harry's super determined to get, Lupin keeps saying like, you know, this is really advanced. I probably shouldn't have tried to teach this to you at this point. Like we should stop. And Harry's like, no, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to do it. And he keeps trying. And on the third try, he sort of gets one and he's able to like ward off the boggart. He doesn't faint, but he does get a little bit woozy and then Lupin puts the bogart back in the back in the trunk and he's like oh amazing like you did it amazing and they're talking and you know Harry realizes oh if you knew my dad and Lupin doesn't divulge his relationship with James which is just he's again trying to be professional but it's so sad that Harry doesn't get to know this stuff he goes oh if you knew my dad you must have known Sirius Black and Lupin gets really defensive yeah it's just so much to unpack. Like, I just can't even imagine the scope and the breadth of feelings that these people are all like hyped up with. And it's so interesting because, you know, I particularly just exist in the realm of the Marauders because I just, they're just my favorite people in the series. But it's just interesting how much James and Lily are like characters that are present in the novels when they're never alive for any of it. I think that's a testament to how they live on in their beloved friends and in their son. Yeah. Yeah. And, and after the lesson, you know, Lupin gives him chocolate and he sends him away. He's like, you know, we'll try it next week again, but we need a break. Important thing that we learn is Lupin tells Harry that the Dementors have been authorized to perform the kiss. Oh, that's right. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. So basically and, to drain the soul out of Sirius if they were to find him. Yeah. And Harry is like, good, they should. Yeah. And Lupin is like, I don't know about that. Yeah, he is. And I don't, and I think it probably deep down stems from the fact that he does not th- actually think Sirius deserves that. And he like actually wonders if he's guilty, but also he, I wonder if there's a part of him that's like, I want him to have to live with it. Yeah. You know, or, you know, maybe he wants the opportunity to ask Sirius what happened or to hurt him himself. Yeah, there's a lot of possibilities here. There's also it's also possible he's feeling all these possibilities between he was one of my best friends. There's no way he could have done it to of course he did it and he's a terrible person or he deserves death or I should kill him or, you know, I think there's probably, you know, 
Lupin doesn't fully believe that Sirius is innocent yet. And I think there's probably somewhere deep down in him that is so angry about how everything went down that if he took one look at Sirius before he knew everything that happened, he would have wanted to kill him. I really do. Yeah. I think I, he's no. that loyal to James and Lily. Not yeah. that he's a vindictive person, but just because of how everything happened with the betrayal. And now here he's spending time, you know, intimate time with James and Lily's son. And he's watching this boy hurting, growing up without his parents. And that's like re-traumatizing all over again. Oh my and God, angering. yes. Yes, to see um, how things are for Harry. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, and this is obviously a massive spoiler, but I think Harry's going to find himself in this position when it comes to Teddy. Probably. Oh my God. Full circle, but horrible. What a horrible circle. I think there's a lot of things about Remus and Harry that are very full, full circle. For example, I always think it's a missed opportunity that Harry did not become the defense against the dark arts teacher because I yep. think he has a great affinity for teaching. As we um, see in Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. And what does yeah. he teach the people in the Order of the Phoenix? What All is the stuff like, that Lupin taught him. Right. Yes. He's teaching him basically in the same format with the same, like he learned how to be a teacher from being taught by Lupin. There's actually something from, there's a behind the scenes tidbit from the films where Dan Radcliffe sort of knew this from reading the books and told the costuming department that because, you know, Harry was influenced so much by Professor Lupin. He wanted to be wearing the cardigan version of the Harry, the, the Gryffindor sweater when he was shown teaching Dumbledore's army because he thought that would make him seem like Lupin with the cardigan, which I, I, thought, was such, which I thought I think is such a cute detail. And it's actually, and, and that's actually more, that's just in the, we, it never says he's wearing a cardigan in the book. That's just something we see in the film. But I, I just think that's really cute that Dan Rod, Radcliffe had that idea. We get this really freaky imagery for the Dementor's kiss that we don't see in the film. They just are hovering above you and your soul just sort of floats out in the book. Remus says like under the hood, like they, if you get under their hood, they clamp their jaws down on you and suck out your soul. It is a lot more physical, yeah. which is terrifying. Yeah. That, well, that probably would have been uh, a lot for a movie audience. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So ugh. There's going to be these more lessons of these. continue. Right. Yeah. We're going to learn there's going to be more of these lessons. But Harry goes back to his dorm and I kind of forget how it happens, but I think it's on Ron's bed. Wait, but there's something before that because Neville's trying to get into the common room. Yes. And, and Sir Cadogan is being a jerk. And he's like, oh, no, I, he, he changed the passwords all the time. But Neville's like, I wrote them down. To and make I sure I wouldn't forget. Them. And now I can't find the passwords I've written. That's going to become important. And so when they get into the the common room, essentially the scene is that Crookshanks is running away. There's a lot of blood or there's some blood. And the belief is that Crookshanks has killed and eaten scabbers. Yes. This is the second time that Peter fakes his own death. He is a coward. Oh my God, you're right. And the second time he's self-mutilated to basically fake his own death and to get away. Do we find out that Peter's the one who does this? Yeah, Peter's the one who does this. He does this to himself. You're right. And then he right. goes and stows away in Hagrid's hut. Totally. Oh my gosh, I never realized that this is the second time he's faked his own death. You're right. He is a coward. He's totally a coward. And then Br Harry gets his firebolt back, by the way, from McGonagall right before this. But yeah, 
oh my gosh, you're right. This is the second time he's faked his own death. And that's what the chapter ends on. And Ron is furious. Yeah, because he thinks that Crookshanks has eaten his rat. Yes. Who he's like, he doesn't even really like him anyway, but he's just so mad that this is the pet that Hermione has brought to Hogwarts. Yes, yes. Yeah, cat. <laughs> and you know, Ron's like, you know, Scavers is not really much to look at. But Harry does mention he's like, he thinks Ron would be miserable if something happened to Scavers. Because he's like sort of his little companion, which is really messed up because it's not even really a rat. But there's another thing right before that just we get a couple instances where Hermione is just like in the common room slaving over her homework. We never see her have any difficulty with taking all this, you know, all these courses in the films. And I would have liked to have seen her have to deal with that stress a little more. I like that we get that in the books because she's brilliant it's and she's really determined, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. And what is the effect it has on her, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that's the end of chapter 12. Mm-hmm. It's about to get so good. We will do chapter 13 through 16 next time. Thanks for listening. And Thanks we'll see you listening. back next week. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our latest episode. As always, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're not a listener on Apple Podcasts, it would still help us out a lot if you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about anything you heard in this episode today, please drop us a line at our Anchor profile. You can leave us a nifty little voice message there, or you can head to our Instagram at the Daily Podcast to DM us or leave us an email. Thank you.